Vines are unlike a lot of other agricultural crops. They do better in poor soil. So the soil in our South Mountain Vineyard is really best described as a bit of dirt stuck between boulders, but the vines absolutely love it here. They struggle in this soil and a struggling vine makes the best wine. So this is a great vineyard because the soil is lousy. Hello, welcome to our first two-part episode. We're here at Bordy Vineyard, one of the oldest and most storied vineyards in the state of Maryland. My name is Howard Fletcher. This year podcast is called the number one, two. Why not go downtown for a bucket of nipple? Mac and cheese in the side of me. I want to go downtown for a bucket of deck bones. They're right next door to the taste of free. You. Everywhere you go, if you're going to talk to someone who is deeply involved in the business, it, they will say the same thing. It begins with your vineyard, and your vineyard in turn is dependent upon where it's planted. And that's, that's the foundation of good wine right there. Why don't you take me downtown for a bucket of nepo? Mac and cheese and a side of pee. Why don't you take me downtown for a bucket of neck bone? They right next door to the tasty free. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the number one two. As I said in the intro, this is part one of a two-part interview. I had the honor of being able to interview Rob DeFord, who is the patriarch of the DeFord family who purchased Bordy Vineyard from the Wagner family in 1980. And since then, he's been on a quest to make some of the best wine in a mid-Atlantic region, and I believe he's been very successful in doing so. We sat down in a barn that was part of his family farm, and now they have, uh, while keeping the rustic look of it, have made it a state-of-the-art tasting room, and also that's where they keep their special library of wines. So um, with that, sit back and relax and enjoy my interview with Rob DeFord. Okay, we're here at the beautiful Bordy Vineyard uh, in Hyde, Maryland. Um, I have to tell you, uh, driving in, this was some really beautiful country. I believe we're northeast of Baltimore in Baltimore County. And I'm sitting here with Robert DeFord, who is the founder, owner of the vineyard, and I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, tell me a little bit, or tell the audience a little bit about your farm, um, about the land and the history behind it. Well, uh, you know, roots are a very important aspect of winemaking, and our roots run very deep. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we came into this farm by marriage in the mid-1800s, and uh, basically are the second family to, to own the farm. The first family founded it in the 17, early 1700s, and we have a cemetery on the property going back to pre-Revolutionary War days. Wow. And uh, the farm has always been active. It's, it's always been a productive farm. Uh, 
It used to encompass most of this valley, which is called the Long Green Valley, and the farm is called Long Green Farm. And it has survived because it's, it's changed with, with the years. And it's gone from one type of crop to another, including various livestock ventures, cattle, horses, etc. When I grew up here, we were in the cattle business and the produce business and the grain business and so forth. And in 1965, we put in a small vineyard that was uh, designed to sell its product, its grapes, to Bordy, which was located inside the Baltimore Beltway mm -hmm. and had been founded by a friend of my parents, a guy named Phil Wagner, in 1945. And in 1945, if you look back, there weren't many wineries in the U.S. at all. No. There had been Prohibition. There had been the war. Uh, and it, it, the, the wine industry was so primitive in those days, it's hard for someone today to even imagine it. And I, I believe, and, and we'd have to check the record to confirm, but I believe there was little to no Chardonnay, for example, planted in California in 1945. Uh -huh. It was hard to find a wine glass. Wow. Um, so when Bordy started, it was truly a pioneer, not only because of the date, but because of the fact that it was dedicated to making wines in a region formerly thought inhospitable to winemaking. And it was that tradition that, that kind of brought us in. And so in the mid-60s, we planted a vineyard on our farm. My first, you know, my, one of my duties, I grew up, you know, working on the farm. Uh, one of my duties was taking care of the vineyard, which um, at the, in those days was a real black box. There was, there was very little research. Um, we, we really didn't know uh, where to turn for information. There's very little support. And we just winged it. And the wines, I think, uh, the, the grapes and the wines were uh, reflected that kind of uh, haphazard approach. They, they, were, they were decent, but um, we had so much to learn. Oh. And, you know, in, in those early days, uh, there were a few wineries around, a very few vineyards, and everyone worked in isolation, and um, that was part of the problem. So as the years went by, and, and eventually we ended up buying Bordy from the founders and bringing it out to our farm in 1980, I studied winemaking at University of California, Davis, to prepare for this, and uh, absolutely loved it, but rapidly discovered upon returning and, and taking Bordy over that what one learns in the Mediterranean climate in California <laughs> doesn't apply to Maryland at all. Wow. <laughs> Not, there's some, some applicability, but for the most part, we have to turn everything on its head here. Now, you're the fourth, actually, winemaker I've spoken to who has mentioned UC Davis. Yes. Are they the go-to school for learning about winemaking and, and uh, viticulture? Or? I think with that question, mm -hmm. yeah. There are other schools, but UC Davis is uh, the, really the heart of the matter. And, and the fact that it's on the West Coast makes sense because I think 90% of the wine in, in the United States is made in, uh, in California. And if you add Oregon and Washington... Um, you've just up, up the percentage even more. So uh, there's the concentration of the industry. There's obviously the support from, from the private sector for the school. It's, it's a great school. Huh. Um, it, it has limitations in that um, it is valid, very California-centric in its approach. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and in, in a perfect world, one would attend school in the climate that is closest to your own, which would have been my case in France. Mm -hmm. But that, that opportunity wasn't there for me. Um, so I was grateful to have a chance to go to Davis. And you learn winemaking at the same time that you learn viticulture. So the winemaking is universally applicable. That's very important. Mm -hmm. It's the growing of the grapes, which is the, fun, the foundation of wine that is so different. 
Yeah, they tell me you can't make good wine out of bad grapes. You, everywhere you go, if you're going to talk to someone who is deeply involved in the business, it, they will say the same thing. It begins with your vineyard, and your vineyard in turn is dependent upon where it's planted. And that's, that's the foundation of good wine right there. Okay, before we get ahead of ourselves, yes. let's go back to uh, Philip Wagner. Sure. Uh, Philip Wagner, uh, as you were telling me before, editor for the Baltimore Sun. Yes. And a writer. And he wrote a book, uh, I believe, called American Wines and How to Make Them. Correct. Um, t- tell me a little bit about that book and how it applies to how wine kind of grew on the East Coast. Well, when he wrote that book, it was written, uh, the, the modern equivalent would be if someone wrote a manual on how to grow pot today. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to remember, it was written in 1932 when Prohibition was still in effect. Right. <laughs> so he was actually writing a manual t- telling people how to do something that was more or less illegal. Mm-hmm. Th- therefore, it, was, um, it was, had a tremendous potential audience because um, everyone was really interested <laughs> in yeah. making your yeah. own wine because yeah. yeah. you couldn't buy it. Yeah. But Prohibition was repealed in '33, about the time the book was actually published. Okay. It's, and so... Good timing. It just so happened, so that for quite a while, it was the only book of its kind available written in the English language. Mm-hmm. So it did have a big following, and, and it was consistent. It, the, the need and demand for it was consistent with what the book had to offer. It wasn't terribly technical, but it had really good fundamentals, extremely well-written, because Phil Wagner was a, a really top-flight writer. And it was it, 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 it was one of those books that actually is, I think until recently, was still in print. Uh, and it's because it has sort of an evergreen quality about it. If you want to take a deeper dive, there are plenty of technical manuals. But if you just want to learn about the fundamentals of what how to grow and make good wine, the, the book still has a, a real place. Now, with that said, um, the, the evolution of, of knowledge has has so far outstripped the modest scope of that book that I look at it more as a, a time, sort of a time capsule uh-huh. than I do a true resource any longer. Uh-huh. Uh, but I was fascinated when I went to UC Davis to see students reading it. And when they learned of my affiliation with Wagner and, 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 and Maryland, they were, they were, I was one of two guys from the East Coast in the entire school. Yeah. At that time. Well, you know, you're, uh, and I'm sure you're told this all the time, your vineyard, your business really is the history or started the history of, it seems, uh, professional winemaking in the state of Maryland. You know, and beyond, you know, uh, that's quite true. Uh-huh. We were the first winery, first commercial winery in the state. And uh, for many years, that remained the case. There, there were no other wineries came along. Mm-hmm. But what's really fascinating about that era is that um, Bordy also was a nursery and sold cuttings, Wagner used to say, to every state except North Dakota. Um, it, it, he was a Johnny Appleseed, and he, got, he really got this sort of Jeffersonian ideal of small farming uh, small independent farms uh, going in the wine business, and it was a direct statement against the, um, the 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 draconian effect of prohibition on the American wine industry. That it was devastating to the growth of of the industry, the quality of the wines. Everything was cut off at the knees, and and he felt it was his personal mission to reverse that by getting as many people as possible growing and and uh, making and drinking wine. So um, there, there is a, a rich, rich history that Bordy is part of and a proud part of with respect to the regional, I'm going to say non-West Coast, although Bordy had plenty of 
relations to people on the West Coast. Wagner was very close to Maynard Amarine, for example, who was one of the founders of UC Davis. Uh, oh. he, he knew Robert Mondavi. Um, I think that uh, Heights, Joe Heights, you know, they were friends. And, and Warren Winiarski, who is Stag's Leap, um, he got his start by visiting Bordy. Bordy has this wonderful little niche it occupies in American history. Yeah, well. But, but, but let, suffice it to say, you can overstate it because so much, it's such a huge and dynamic industry that the, the role that Bordy played is, is uh, had its, its place in a moment in time. Right. But I don't think we should overstate its importance today because that what's going, what's happening today is just is enormously dynamic, widespread. There's quality um, revolutions happening all over the country right now. Right. Well, from what I know of your history and uh, your parents, when they started growing grapes, they grew them for Wagner. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. It sounds like that when, they, when you bought the winery in 1980, it's much like uh, when uh, Bill Gates bought DOS and then created Microsoft. <laughs> you know, uh, DOS was a, a revolutionary software, but it wasn't until Gates took it and made it something that it, and applied it to IBM that it actually could become something. And it sounds like that's where you took Bordy and the Wagner idea. It's a very grand comparison. Well, it's a grand comparison. It's a grand comparison. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think you guys make some really great wines here. Well, thank you for that. And, and uh, so I, I guess, you know, to paraphrase, uh, we, we got sort of a kernel of, of something that was in its day quite wonderful and, uh -huh. and wrote, was revolutionary in its day. But um, like anything, it, it Bordy, this winery needed to be dynamic and to, and to grow and change and improve in order to remain relevant. And um, over my career, um, I have seen the, the I'm going to say the mid-Atlantic wine industry and, and the, the non-West Coast wine industry kind of find its stride and go from what I think were, uh, at, at the beginning, uh, a, a pretty rough offerings. Um, not, not that everything was not drinkable, but, but it was just very, uh, the quality was hit or miss. Um, and, and there was a lot of um, a lot of folks who I think were turning out wines that they were not adequately self-critical of. You know, we, we remaining humble and self-critical in this business is, is critical to achieving good quality. So what's happened since is this tremendous updraft of of knowledge and 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 focus on quality that is really apparent. And I'm I mean. Um, it, it's not just in the mid-Atlantic. It's it's th throughout the the United States. Uh, regions are emerging with real strengths. They're finding their stride. They're finding their grape varieties. How to grow them, how to make them into into good wines. It's a tremendously exciting period. The, the last this is year thirty what, year thirty eight for me, um, and I just can't imagine um, having chosen a more exciting time to be part of the of the of the wine industry. Well, let's talk about that. You uh, you come back from UC Davis. Uh, you, it's 1980. Right. You, you've, you've purchased uh, the name, Bordy. <clears throat> you change. Now, where we are now, let's, let's tell everyone where we are. I'm, we're sitting at a farmhouse, an old farmhouse that's your, now your tasting room. Is that correct? It's actually a barn. Yeah, it was never a residence. It was a residence for cattle. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's an 1830s uh, stone and wood barn. Yeah. That we're it, sitting in. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's beautiful down here, and the temperature is ideal for storing wine. You showed me uh, your library. That's yes. also in here. Yes. Um, 
1980, you decide to get into the uh, winemaking, grape growing business. Right. Wine grape growing business. Um, how, tell us how that evolved. I mean, where you, you, you said there was a learning curve and now you're, you know, really on, you know, hitting your stride. Uh, what, what went on between now since 1980? Well, the, the first thing I discovered <clears throat> was that the winery we thought we had bought was not the winery we got. Hmm. Uh, and that really came, uh, became apparent as I gained a greater appreciation for what it took to make good wine. And the impression I got from Phil Wagner, who I think said this in, in perfectly good faith given his degree of understanding, was that this was a, this was a completely formed uh, business that all I had to do was avoid making major mistakes and it would just flourish. Well, the first thing that happened is uh, markets outside of Maryland all closed up because they were, they were carrying Bordy wine because they liked Phil Wagner. They didn't know me. Mm. So I was getting defective product back from Boston, from, from New York, from Washington, D.C. It was just coming flooding in. And I, I said, well, what's going on here? Well, in each case, they just had an, an affection for, for Phil Wagner, <clears throat> but the wines weren't selling. And they were actually slowly but surely going bad. And so my first really rude awakening was that the market is a really tough place and that um, personal relationships matter, but at the end of the day, you have, to be, you have to be competitive on the basis of quality and value and that, that you have to make yourself necessary to the market. And uh, that is something that I would say is, was true in 1980 when I started. It was a really rude awakening for me because when I was in wine school, marketing that word per se was never mentioned once. And uh, it's true today, 38 years later. Mm -hmm. Every day that I get up, I say, well, what are we going to do to make ourselves um, valuable and necessary to, to our customers? And the other thing that really surprised me was how really bad Maryland's laws were. Uh, I could barely talk to a consumer legally. We couldn't sell our wine here. We couldn't do tastings. Um, it, it, the list goes on. And <clears throat> we certainly couldn't ship our wine to a customer. That took over 30 years to fix. Mm -hmm. And so the other side of what I've done that was not part of the business plan was I've been very involved in improving the legislative climate for Maryland wines. Because that's the basis. You have really two bases. You have what's going on in nature, which is number one. But if you are prohibited by law from doing what you need to do in order to reach customers, then all is for naught. So there has been a kind of parallel evolution of learning to grow better grapes and make better wine and, and creating a legal environment in which we can flourish. And I'll say today that work um, is nearly done. There's more to be done, but we're in such a better place today than we were. And as a winery starting today um, is, is at a much higher uh, starting point. The foundation for that winery is at a much higher starting point because the laws are so much more favorable. And the, the of course, on the other side, the understanding of what to grow, where to grow it, how to grow it are, are much better understood. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that uh, legislative <clears throat> piece because uh, whenever I talk to small business owners, the advice I have for them, because uh, oftentimes I don't know anything about their business. Like I can't tell you anything about growing grapes, but if you didn't already know it, I'd tell you to get to know your representative of where you are. So whether that is your 
city council member to your uh, state senator to your U.S. senator to your congressperson because uh, that's at, you know eventually that's going to come into play. And it seemed like that was a big, big stepping stone for the wine industry. In, it was uh, big because uh, the laws were written in 1933 with mm -hmm. the re repeal of prohibition, and they had not changed since. And there were no wineries in Maryland in 1933. Mm -hmm. So they were not even mentioned. We, were, we didn't exist legally as an entity, as a legal entity, anywhere in the law. So we were constantly being compared to, um, are we, uh, are we uh, agriculture? Are we... Um, are we a retail store? Are we a distributor? Are we a factory? What are we? And defining us was the, the first thing we had to do in, in Maryland law. And that means not just statewide law, but local law. And, and we, we could have an entire day's conversation about this, which we don't have to have, but you asked what the challenges were that I hadn't anticipated. Right. Well, the, I, I knew growing grapes was going to be challenging. I knew making wine was going to be challenging. I'd had some background in that. I'd had zero background in marketing, and I had zero background in, in anything to do with, with addressing the legal challenges. Mm -hmm. So they have, marketing and, and the, the law have consumed a lot of my time. And it's one of the reasons that I ultimately, six years in, I hired someone to help with the winemaking who became, not long after, the full-time winemaker here. And I had to back off a bit to address these other concerns if we were going to survive as, as a business. Wow. Let's talk about the fun stuff now. Let's talk yeah. about the wine. Yeah. Because uh, we just took a short tour of the uh, facilities. It's very impressive. You have gone all out and you have a really, you have a, a very rustic setting and a state-of-the-art winemaking facility all in one. It's, right. it's really impressive. So um, tell me about th when that's, project started and the things that you've done to get to where you are now? Yeah, well, uh, one of the great challenges for an older winery like us is to, is to remain at the top of your game and to, to never rest on your laurels. Now, Bordy has won tons of awards, and it would be easy to say, we're there, we've arrived. But uh, that is absolutely not the case. And, and I'll just say as a sidebar, I just had the, the wonderful opportunity to uh, travel to Bordeaux, and, and it's because we work with a consultant from there. And I found that here in this wine region that dates back to Roman times, they are, they are still questing for that next increment of quality. Mm. And I thought, never ends. Yeah. <laughs> never, never ends. And, yeah. and I found so much in common with the people I talked to. At any rate, uh, we have over the years taken these steps that I felt were critical to um, trying to reach uh, for the next level. And each time, it, it was a, these were big steps that we've taken, and each time there was definitely a commensurate improvement in the quality of the wine, so it's very gratifying. Mm -hmm. But by 2006, I began to taste some wines from... Um, a, a woman that I highly admire and I've worked with over the years named Lucy Morton. Mm -hmm. She's a vineyard consultant and she had clients in Virginia and Pennsylvania at the time, was just picking up a few in Maryland, but they really hadn't been making wine yet. And, and I was tasting her clients' wines and I thought, our wines aren't this good. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. So I, I got Lucy to, she re-engaged with us and, and I, uh, we walked the vineyards and she basically said, if you want to reach the next level of quality, you have to consider replanting all your vines. Wow. So that's nearly 50 acres of vines. And 
it was a bitter pill to swallow, but I didn't pay Lucy to tell me nice things. I paid her to, <laughs> to tell me the truth. Right. And that was what she felt. And, and there are a number of reasons why that was so. Um, you know, our vineyards were, had, were old. We've, we've had them in the ground for many, many years. And there was some suffering in, uh, of the health of the vines for that reason. But they were also planted too far apart, so they didn't compete with one another enough, um, which is critical. Um, clones, that means sub-varieties, have evolved over the years. New ones were available from nurseries that were superior to the ones we had on the ground. And a vine is a two-part plant. It has a, a scion or a top part, which makes the wine. It has a root, which oh. is uh, based on a vines from North America. The rootstock that we had uh, was the wrong rootstock. So basically, when you add all this together, there wasn't a Band-Aid. There was, there was only you know, a deep surgery that was yeah. required. <laughs> so systematically, we began um, in 06 to remove and to replant. And we have a fantastic vineyard manager here with, is, I think is one of the greatest talents in the United States. And I'm not exaggerating, mm -hmm. he's a remarkable guy named Ron Waits. And Ron uh, has shepherded with Lucy, our viticultural consultant, the transformation of our vineyards from uh, the 2006 situation, the, the status quo then, to what they are today. Uh, 2018, we just completed the replanting, that's how mm -hmm. long it took. And um, the, the, we began to see the effect in 2010 of the first replants, and uh, immediately we said, this is remarkable. This yeah. is really phenomenal, what's, what's coming out of these vineyards. Yeah. Your wine is well, it, it, pretty it, spectacular. Thank so. you. And, and it really has been gratifying to see that effect. Now, when you ripped up those, uh, those old vines... Um, did you replant with the same varietals or did you use that opportunity to do something else? Or, uh, the second one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We took this opportunity to revisit everything. Mm -hmm. And we feel that, that, that the, the core varietals that are emerging as champions in this region certainly deserved a, a strong place in our replanting. But we also went a little beyond that and we have... Uh, uh, for example, a pretty big commitment in a variety called Albarino, yes. which is a fascinating grape. And yeah. one of the reasons we went into it is that one of our two winemakers is from Spain. Uh. And, and he said, this is a lot like northern Spain here. Why don't we try Albarino? So we didn't go into it. We didn't just stick our toe in the water. We put a significant amount in, and it is a lovely variety for us. Yeah, I had a bottle of it last week. Well, I tasted it here, and I bought a bottle for a friend uh, who it's loved it. It's got a lot of character and, and, and really can, I've never food. found anything like that around here. Yeah. And, and we're not the only one that has it, but um, we, we have now adopted it as one of our key core varieties. And, and just backing off a bit, I'll say that to answer your question, um, we have little bits and pieces of trial rows here and there, but, but our main replanting was a kind of a confirmation of what we feel we do best. And... Um, Cabernet Franc is certainly a strong variety for this region, and we have a big commitment to that. We love Merlot, mm -hmm. um, although its its weakness is that if it's if it's uh, gets a little too cold, Merlot vines can suffer. They're not as cold hardy as Cabernet Franc. We have a, a reasonable commitment to Cabernet Sauvignon, which I think over time we're going to reevaluate. Mm -hmm. um, but it it does provide um, in some years a good basis for what I'd call a medium quality wine. Cabernet Sauvignon really, in my opinion, is, does better in, in warmer climates. Um, 
but uh, we're st we're not going to give up on it because it, it it is such a great grape. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think we're going to plant more of it. Petit Verdot is a fantastic variety for this region, mm -hmm. and um, that is looked at as kind of a, um, a a niche blending wine in Bordeaux. Well, here I think there's a new clone of it, and it has a tremendous future as a perhaps even a varietal. Yeah. And then we have um, bits and pieces of other varieties, which I won't necessarily elaborate unless okay. you would like to go into it. But um, it's it's uh, all in the in in the quest of finding that that compatibility between the big factors the soil the climate and the wine and you really have to give the variety about 10 years before you can make a decision on how, on how it's working out and that's it for part one i'd like to thank robert deford for his time if you liked what he had to say there's more coming your way next week please look for us on our facebook page at the number one two podcast and also on Instagram at the number one two podcast. Also, please remember to give us a review on iTunes or on SoundCloud or Blueberry or whatever platform you're listening to us. It seems like a very small thing, but it helps us out a whole lot. I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to listen. If you're looking for a great place to have a good afternoon and taste some really great wine, I would encourage everyone listening to go to Bordy Vineyards in Hyde's, Maryland. That's at Bordy.com. Uh, you can look at their website and get all the information you need. That's B-O-O-R-D-Y dot com. All the music in this episode, in every episode, is supplied by Cadillac Grip. If you're ever in Boulder or Denver, go see Cadillac Grip play. Because if you ain't hip to the grip, you just ain't hip. My name is Howard Fletcher. This is number one, two. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I said my mama she took me in bed at night made sure I was feeling right my one shining light come on and help me